Welcome to episode 348 of the Microsoft Cloud IT Pro Podcast, recorded live on August 11th, 2023. This is a show about Microsoft 365 and Azure from the perspective of IT pros and end users, where we discuss a topic or recent news and how it relates to you. You get a subscription and you get a subscription and you get a subscription. Today, we talk all about Azure subscriptions, the nuances around them, and considerations for having multiple subscriptions regardless of your company size. Did you want to mention your HashiCorp news that you posted out there? I saw that link. Yeah. This was interesting-ish. I spend a little bit of my life thinking about how we interact with our customers with open source tooling, right? Like I've got easy copy and SDKs and all these things, and we certainly want to encourage customer contributions. I work with customers to help them sometimes like think about ways to do like data migration and maybe wrap easy copy rather than building your own data migration engine. Thing, thing, things like that. So you know, all our stuff is like out on GitHub with a fairly standard MIT license. Yep. Like you know, another customer could come and they could fork one of our projects, take it on and pick it up and make it their own thing and they could support it and do whatever they need to from there. So HashiCorp so they're the purveyors of Terraform so Terraform has traditionally been an open source project and it's been, I believe it was licensed under an MIT license previously. But regardless of that, you know, they've been in a position where they publish things like the core of the Terraform engine out to GitHub. And anybody can come and clone or fork that project and do what they need to do with it. So that could be a customer, it could be an ISV, it could be a partner, could frankly be a competitor. And then competitor, uh, and then HashiCorp, like many other companies that publishes open source tooling, they have an enterprise entity as well. And that entity is out there to make money and keep the rest of the business going. So HashiCorp made the decision this week, yesterday, today is Friday, August 10th, 2023, As of August 10th, 2023, they are going to a BSL or a BUSL, but it's a business source license. So it's an alternative license that puts some restrictions in place, particularly in the areas of what competitors can do with that code and where they might need to acquire a commercial license from HashiCorp. But if you're like a big open source purist, I can't say I'm like exactly evangelical about it, but you know, for all the FAQs and everything that HashiCorp put out and blog posts and things like that, like this effectively makes them not open source in like the true, you know, evangelical kind of sense of things. I don't think there's a major impact to customers. There should not be a major impact to customers. Like everything stays up on GitHub. You still have access to SDKs, APIs. Where it starts to get interesting is in how those restrictive covenants potentially impact others from working with HashiCorp. So now it becomes really a HashiCorp decision for who they choose to really dive in and work with and grant additional licensing to 
beyond their BSL licensing. So if you think about being a hyperscaler, right? You're Microsoft with Azure, you're AWS, Amazon with AWS, you're Google with GCP, all those kinds of things. There are pretty decent hooks in Terraform, and we've talked about this a little bit in the past, really working with these hyperscalers and having kind of ready-to-go providers in Terraform for all the major clouds, all the major resources, things like that. So Technically, at this point, per that BSL, depending on how like HashiCorp kind of chooses to look at it, like if they didn't already have a relationship with Microsoft and Amazon and others, mm, that could be kind of bad. Like they're saying they're going to continue to work with all these companies. Clearly, they made this decision for a reason. Like they must have some competitors who are leaning in like way too hard, and they feel like they're using their IP that had been previously released under that earlier, it wasn't an MIT model, uh, it was an MPL, Mozilla Public License, so under that model that was out there before. It's going to be interesting maybe to see like over the next year, six months to a year, like who has to drop out and can't stay in the race because of that. There's been a lot of this lately, like HashiCorp isn't the only company to do this. I, I don't know if you follow along with Linux distributions and things that are going on there. Red Hat had kind of a big brouhaha around what they've done with their enterprise licensing and how that formulates and comes back to things like CentOS and what was going to get out in the mainline. It's kind of like Java did, Oracle did with Java a couple years ago, however long ago that was now, and took all those things down that path. So we shall see where all this stuff goes. I think it's a weird time in open source land. Like if you're an open source purist, as a lot of these entities that have open source components that then they've commercialized maybe a little bit more than support on top of, and they're truly product-driven. Like They're trying to peel their products back and own more of that and own more of their future along the way. Yeah, I read this and I, again, I couldn't figure out exactly, to your point, this doesn't change a lot. And I've used some of their stuff a little bit. And the one paragraph, well, one paragraph, one sentence they have in here, uh, about halfway down, it, well, it's towards the bottom of the article, there's comments and stuff, is that it really impacts, like you said, the vendors who provide competitive services built on their community products and their ability to incorporate future releases, bug fixes, security patches, all of that. I didn't even think, like, would this really affect Microsoft? Because does Microsoft actually build competitive services built on their community products? So HashiCorp owns the underlying engine. I don't know how it is at AWS and GCP, but in the case of Microsoft, yeah, direct contributor to the resource provider in Terraform for ARM resources. And there's some kind of there, there's some logic behind that, right? If you think about companies like HashiCorp with Terraform or Puppet and Chef and some of these other orchestration engines, yep. they don't necessarily always know like what's coming next, right? Like, hey, when's that next new feature going to come in that service? Or there's a new service lighting up. So sometimes like 
at least in the case of the hyperscalers, like we're more well positioned to own that stuff and kind of push out updates down downstream. And to do that, it's got to be a back and forth relationship, right? Like we need to know what's coming in Terraform, and the folks at HashiCorp need to know what's coming on our side. So that needs to be a little bit of a, a dialogue because, like Terraform for Azure, used to move a lot slower until kind of Microsoft stepped in and took on some of that dev effort upfront to get those things moving. So I don't know, like if HashiCorp came back and they said, oh, we want to build all of our own providers now and those are core to the Terraform experience, like for the hyperscalers, like what does that mean for the hyperscalers, right? Like I, I, I don't think it would get there. But the kind of meta point is HashiCorp is in full control of that now. So back to that whole like, eh, what's open source thing? And is somebody going to be like a little bit more evangelical or a purist about it? It's a little bit of a different place to be, right? When the enterprise steps back in and takes that on for themselves. Interesting. I thought it was a fun one. And, and like I said, like no major impact to customers. I don't think, unless you're using a competitor product that somehow runs afoul of this thing. And that's when it becomes interesting in like six to twelve months because, you know, as new features come out on the HashiCorp side or in the core of Terraform, like can they keep up with it? Like yeah, I don't know. We shall see. But if you're just a regular customer and you're out there and like, hey, I use Terraform and I deploy it and I use these things, like you're fine. No major impact for you there. Right, if you well, wanted to even... go out and build a competitor business, though, you're like, ooh, I just became a Terraform expert and now I want to build a competitor business on top of it. Like depending on what you want to build, that could be rougher. Right, because that's what I'm going to say. As long as it sounds like you're not actually building anything that competes with Terraform, you're still not. There still isn't any impact for you. It's only if you use their stuff to build other stuff that competes with their stuff. Yes, that's my reading of their BSL and kind of reading between the lines in their FAQ. But, you know, folks got to go out and, and read that for themselves and take it in. And I should yeah. both, I am not a lawyer. <laughs> yeah. Or a licensing expert. So, yes, I agree. Go figure it out. Have your lawyers figure it out if you think it might impact you, but... To your point, if you're out there just building stuff, deploying stuff, managing state with Terraform and all that, really nothing changes. Correct. All right, so So, since we've been talking about Terraform and deploying stuff, you want to talk about deploying stuff? Let's talk about deploying stuff. So I had a client come to me, and they said, we want to deploy, and this is... for anybody listening, or those of you in the Discord anxiously waiting, this is the discussion Scott and I were having right before we jumped on live today. I had a customer come to me, and they said, I want to deploy Microsoft Defender for Cloud, but I'm not going to give you access to the subscription. I will only give you access to the three resource groups that we want to push Microsoft Defender for Cloud to, and we don't necessarily want to turn it on for everything. We are a small business segment focused on a particular app that it's three resource groups, same subscription, dev test, QA. Frankly, I don't even know what other resource groups are in there or how many they have, what are the resources they have. And I was like, okay, let's go turn the satellite up for the VMs and... I knew I was going to have to go into the subscription. You turn on Microsoft Defender for Cloud at the subscription. I don't know that I ever put two and two together until I went to try to do this, that you cannot only light this up for 
a subset of resources, whether they be on a resource-by-resource basis-ish. There are some exceptions to this, but just a couple. Or even at a resource group level. Like, all of the Defender for Cloud is published with pricing of, like, servers. $15 per server per month for Defender for Cloud Plan 2. So much for Azure SQL, so much for storage accounts, all of this. But you go turn this on at your subscription, and you can pick and choose which resources you want on. So you could only turn it on for servers, or only turn it on for storage accounts. Yeah, uh, pick which resource types. Which resource types, yes. Good, yes. Clarify that. Resource types. Only turn it on for SQL. But it will get turned on for all of that particular resource type at the entire subscription level. So in this case... This small business segment, because they just did resource groups in a much larger subscription that realistically could have 300 other resource groups in it, for all I know, cannot leverage Microsoft Defender for Cloud without impacting the other 297 or 506 or whatever number it happens to be without impacting and conversely paying for that resource type protection across the entire subscription. And I was complaining about that because I wanted to have more granularity in which resources this gets deployed to. I said there are some exceptions. There's a couple of them. Like I noticed storage accounts. You can go into a storage account, go into Defender for Cloud, and essentially say don't inherit the settings from the subscription and just disable Defender for Cloud on the storage account. But that does not hold true for every resource, nor is there any way to do that with like policy or exclusions of a certain resource group. It's like a manual resource by resource toggle that you could probably script it out, but I was annoyed and I was complaining to Scott. I love this as a (laughs) good lesson in potentially how you approach deploying a new service in the cloud. So it sounds like, and it's kind of an unfortunate situation, but it sounds like that customer that you're working with didn't take step one, which was go read the pricing docs. Like, the, like that <laughs> is the, the most important piece of documentation that you could sit down and kind of start to consume and touch. And I don't know that the Defender team has done a great job with kind of disambiguating what is an individual resource constraint within their service and then what's just the broader Defender for a cloud thing. So step one would be, hey, let's go read the pricing docs. Step two, and we kind of do this on all the to the cloud streams we do, right? Like yep. when we start playing with this stuff, is hey, let's go read the overview docs. I've never touched this service before. Let's just see what's going on with it. What are you kicking around? So, you know, you and I were chatting earlier about it. So I started going down that path. I'm like, all right, let me go look at the pricing docs. Let me see what's happening. Let me go look at the overview. And if you go look at the overview for Defender, it very quickly points you to a place which says, how do you enable paid plans on your subscriptions? And I I absolutely love the way this is done. Is If you go to that (laughs) link that I just put in uh, Discord, it'll be in the show notes there. That is 
the it has a note, you know, like one of those like purple boxes in the Microsoft Docs, and that is the one place where I have found so far that it calls out here is the specific set of resource types that are going to be available for individual like resource level enablement like you mentioned storage accounts there's defender for sql which you got to be careful with cuz there's defender for sql like defender for <laughs> like sql services like azure sql yep. and then there's defender for sql like iaz vms so that one's a little bit weird you have open source relations relational databases so like mysql mariadb things like that and then you can also do workspace level Defender plans for servers and Defender for SQL servers on virtual machines. That being said, Defender is like a slew of things. I forget how many they have. There's got to be at least 10 different workload types that they cover, if not more within there today, and they keep adding more of them on. So the way I like to think about Defender in the back of my head is Defender is fundamentally a subscription scoped thing, right? Like I'm going to light this up and it's going to protect everything in my subscription for a workload that I enable. So I go enable Defender for Servers. Great, or let's pick one that it like can only cover everything. So I go to Defender for App Service. Every single app service, regardless of scope within that subscription, like if it lives, you know, in this resource group over here, this resource group, like all of them are just now protected versus that Defender for storage thing, which then I go light it up one piece at a time and, and turn it on that way. The other thing that I've seen that's very con- uh. storage accounts, it's the opposite way. You go turn it on and it lights it up for everything. It's on by default for everything. You have to go disable it. Yes. Yes. It's not you can light it up and then go enable it one by one. It's you light it up and then you have to go through. So in my case, like let's say they have 300 subscriptions, I'd have to go into the other 297 subscriptions and turn off every storage account across all those subscriptions after I enabled it. I can't just enable it and then say, go just... Let's go manually turn it on on these two or three. You want me to give you like another little bit of nuance here? That's probably going to annoy you even more. Sure. You don't enable Defender for Cloud for resources like that in the actual resource provider of the owning service. So, like for a storage account, if you want to manipulate. Defender for Cloud for storage accounts, you use the Defender for Cloud RP, their resource provider, to do that, which makes sense, right? Because it's a Defender piece of functionality. But I have seen like customer asks come in where they go, hey, you don't have a commandlet in storage, or I can't do this through your API. And it's like, well, because it's not us that did it, right? It's the Defender <laughs> team that did it. Right. They own it. We give you the storage account, and now you wanted to do something else with an additive service that was technically outside of storage. Like, all right, you've got to go potentially solve for that one and figure it out. So, so Defender becomes kind of a, a wonky service in that way because it's really like a big bundle and then a bunch of attributes that are applied to it for workloads. And then you can potentially get really granular uh, and go down to the resource level. But that's all dependent upon the Defender resource provider and their building model and and all the things that they do there. But I think another interesting thing that came out of the conversation we were having was I'm starting to talk to more and more customers where there's this inherent just fear of 
additional operational complexity around having multiple subscriptions in Azure. I totally get it. Like If you've been doing Azure since the ASM days, or I'll say pre-management groups in Azure AD, Entry ID, all that stuff, Like if that's the mindset you're coming from and you've never played with management groups, then... I think multi-subscription gets a little bit scary. Like it's tough. How do you have insights into things? How do you deploy policy at scale? All that good kind of stuff. The other thing that I run into is customers get scared of multiple subscriptions because they think multiple subscriptions means a bunch of manual process. Like, oh, you know, I'm a customer on an MCA, like I, I transitioned from an EA, an enterprise agreement, over to a Microsoft customer agreement. And because I made that transition, now I'm just like, uh, I'm on some kind of different plan. I don't know what I'm doing over here. If I want to create a new subscription, I'm going to go out to my licensing portal and spin it up that way. In the one, the portal that I still remember and is near and dear to my heart is the EA portal. Like, I gone in there many a time and manually created a subscription. But you don't need to do that. Like There are avenues to programmatically create Azure subscriptions, and it's not for everybody. And when I say it's not for everybody, it's only available to certain classes of subscriptions or certain types, so specifically EA, MCA, and MPA subscriptions. But totally doable. And then once you go down that path, like so if I can programmatically create a subscription and I can manage all of my subscriptions at scale through management groups, at least in the lens of policy and getting that down, that's kind of two big buckets for me. And then I think the third leg of that chair tends to be security. So I also see customers that still don't necessarily grok the whole Azure AD, Entra ID isn't actually Azure thing. (laughs) It's kind of like this meta service sitting out over here. So they go, oh, I have to create another subscription. Well, that means I need to redo all my security and I'm going to have another identity provider and I got to go back and I got to do my security groups. Like, no, 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 let's take a step back because now you have a tenant that holds your identity. You're going to take that new subscription and associate it with that existing tenant. So it gets all the existing security. You can use the same security groups, same enterprise app, same SPNs, all that kind of stuff is available to you. Management groups are going to be the construct that lets you come back and apply policy consistently across one or more subscriptions that you've grouped together and you can have I forget how many how many levels to the hierarchy or management groups really like eight or nine levels something like that like it was I can't remember there's a ton of flexibility there that's available to you but you need to shift your mindset a little bit out of like oh I'm doing everything manually over to how do I automate that and start to move things forward a little bit. Do you feel overwhelmed by trying to manage your Office 365 environment? Are you facing unexpected issues that disrupt your company's productivity? Intelligent is here to help. Much like you take your car to the mechanic that has specialized knowledge on how to best keep your car running, 
Intelligent helps you with your Microsoft Cloud environment because that's their expertise. Intelligent keeps up with the latest updates in the Microsoft Cloud to help keep your business running smoothly and ahead of the curve. Whether you are a small organization with just a few users up to an organization of several thousand employees, they want to partner with you to implement and administer your Microsoft Cloud technology. Visit them at intelligent.com slash podcast. That's I-N-T-E-L-L-I-G-I-N-K dot com slash podcast for more information or to schedule a 30-minute call to get started with them today. Remember, Intelligent focuses on the Microsoft Cloud so you can focus on your business. So here you go. You can have 10,000 management groups in a single AD tenant and six levels of depth. Not including the root or the subscription. So gotcha. you've got levels and lots you can create. Yeah. And, th- and then I think the other thing to think about here is, and we got a couple of folks mentioned it in the chat, is if you're an SMB, like you're just a, a small business, really, like, I get that there's friction, but how much friction is it for you to go to the Azure portal and just spin up a new subscription? Like next, 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 your way through it. Even if you're a Pago customer and you have to put a credit card on there, like, I do this as a Pago customer. Like I have to keep some Azure subscriptions around as just Pago subscriptions because like there's a, there's only certain ways to get into functionality that I need or or I need visibility in the way customers see things versus the way they are in like our preview portals and stuff internally and I just need them in like a bog standard subscription. So it's it's easy enough to do. Yeah. I think for a lot of it and it's going to sound harsh I know it's going to sound harsh, but I don't mean it to be harsh. It's not as hard or as much friction as a lot of folks are thinking about it to be. Like once you sit down and, and think about it, like it does not take more than five minutes to create a new subscription if you just want to next, next, next your way through it. It's not like a three-month project to figure it out and get it going and start living your life that way. Yeah, and even as a CSP, so I do indirect CSP stuff and I have some clients that buy Azure subscriptions from me and even from my side, same thing. They need a new subscription. It's like, sure, let me set one up for you. It takes me 30 seconds to go log into the portal, click new subscription, they're good to go. And I agree, like there was those questions in the Discord chat of like, uh, someone asked, typical number of subscriptions in a small business. Some people are saying at least two. I think like at least to your point and mine, some of it is because of my Azure credits, but I have like 12 12 Azure subscriptions. And there's... Me and Sean and I have JP doing it. Like, there's three or four of us, but it allows me to separate stuff out. Like, I can go flip on Microsoft Defender for Cloud to see it and make sure I'm only hitting like one of each resource type. So I'm not using a bunch of money to test it. To your point, I think people way undercreate the number of subscriptions they realistically should. And I don't know that people put a lot of thought into it. Again, I'm going through this with another client right now where they have five or six subscriptions. We're going out to 11. We may even spin it out to even more for reasons like this. Like, There's a lot of stuff at the subscription level. I think the other barrier I do see people run into with subscriptions, and it's something to think about, is how do you do your networking if you're going to start spanning a bunch of subscriptions. Because you do run into that... A VNet, a network, cannot span multiple subscriptions, so you end up having to do 
different things to connect these together. One could also argue it's good because it helps you separate out your networks and create maybe a true hub and spoke type model, separate out those networks because maybe you shouldn't actually have all those resources in the same network anyways. It's trade-offs and kind of rationalizing your way through it. So I'll go back to the docs thing again here. So Microsoft has a couple of frameworks. So there's the well-architected framework, like when you're actually getting ready to like build things out, like, hey, what's the best way for me to build this application or design it with services, things like that. There's another framework that's called the cloud adoption framework. And inside of the cloud adoption framework, there's tons of guidance around things like how should you think about organizing management groups? And I'm specifically going to say management groups, not management group, because you're probably going to have like multiple levels to that hierarchy and multiple groups within them. If you go out into the CAF, that cloud adoption framework, and you start going into the resource organization stuff, like you just threw a link in the chat for like organizing subscriptions, just pay attention. Like, Everything is pluralized. <laughs> like it's not organized subscription, it's organized subscriptions. And even to the point where you get down and you like there's some use cases, like hey, specific use cases, all the documentation is not create your initial subscription, it's create your initial subscriptions, scale with multiple <laughs> subscriptions, organize your subscriptions. So the thing that folks need to get out of their head and, or potentially kind of just wrap their head around is if you've been doing Azure for a long time, you were taught to treat your subscription and then your resource groups inside that subscription as units of management that are aligned with your business needs. Right. So, like, I had one subscription and then I had my business units like finance and HR, and maybe I had a resource group for each of them. And then I went and deployed my things and, and sprinkled them out there and, and did that. In today's world, where it is easier to create, operate, manage, and maintain multiple subscriptions, you can really up level that and think about it at a higher scope. And you can go from treating your resource groups as a unit of management that are aligned with your business needs to treating subscriptions as a unit of management that are aligned with your business needs. And then once you do that, you're in a totally different place. Like it, it is a different mindset and a different way to think about it. And I tend to find as long as all your subscriptions are in the same tenant, like you talked about having 12 subscriptions across multiple tenancies and kind of the pain that comes along with that, like I totally get that. That's a pain. But as long as I can do things like AZ login once to my tenant and then have access to all the subscriptions inside it, like I really don't care if it's in sub A, sub B, sub C, whatever it happens to be. Uh, subscriptions is subscription. I just want to get down to the underlying resource that's available with it there. I agree 100% that it, it absolutely was in the early days. And I think this is, to your point, why people are struggling with it. People were doing stuff at the resource group level. It was resource groups for departments, for business units, for applications, for use tagging, use all of that. I think it's very much transitioned to subscriptions. And if you want to do a SharePoint analogy, it's kind of like the transition we've seen there where it used to be, let's create a SharePoint site collection. 
and create all the SharePoint sites underneath it. And it has transitioned to now let's just do site collections for everything and there's no point in creating subsites. For those of you that are in the Office 365 space and <laughs> need an analogy to that. You go back to like even the SharePoint analogy. In SharePoint, you never create just a single site collection. No. You are well, going to end up with you multiple should. ones. <laughs> and I go back to like that calf thing. Like if you go into the docs, it just keeps driving you this way. It's saying, like, hey, here's recommendations. And they're not even recommendations. Like we're in like patterns and practices. These are things that have been proven out across multiple customers over time. And this is the way like stuff is managed at scale like these are like direct learnings from Microsoft having to do itself you know their major customers even their internal services right if you think about like you know Azure SQL Azure SQL is an Azure service that is built on top of Azure as well Azure storage is a service built on, like we're all built on top of Azure and so you have to get into that mental model and that mindset so like even if you go to the hey create your first subscription guidance in the CAF. It's not create your first subscription, it's create your first two subscriptions. Here's how to create your production and your non-prod subscription at the same time. Like, just go ahead and get this done from the start and... And then you got to figure out the next friction points. Like, how do you deploy things? How do you move things around? How do you secure them? And there's tons of great prescriptive, like really good, really prescriptive guidance out there for that with things like landing zones. You mentioned network topologies. Like, hey, there's a ton of guidance out there for thinking about, like, do I do hub and spoke? Do I need uh, connectivity back to my WAN? Do I do virtual WAN? How do I think about IP addressing across multiple subscriptions, multiple VNets, multiple subnets, all those kinds of things. How do I think about security? Like it all just starts to kind of tie back together once you have that initial mental model in your head. Yeah, and Pirate is asking in the chat too like do you think it's purely a conceptual thing? And I'm assuming you're meaning like getting over that barrier having multiple subscriptions and thinking through all those concepts. And I would say 100 percent, especially from people that have been doing Azure for a long time and been listening to Microsoft talk about it for a long time, is that it's, like you said, it's a step upwards in the architecture that's, as it's grown, as people have used Azure, if we've learned more, as we've architected more, it is absolutely a step upwards in the architecture and thinking through how you plan this out. And you even look at like some of the Microsoft exam stuff around architecture and going back to hammering home this multiple subscription thing is Microsoft more and more hammers through and it came through like Scott said, the landing zones, through the cloud architecture framework, all of that is this is one of those things that anybody that's standing up Azure now or looking at moving forward with Azure needs to understand these concepts and really put thought and planning into this ahead of time. I do feel for companies that maybe have been on the same Azure subscription for eight, nine years. They got on Azure when it first came out, when it absolutely was do everything in one subscription, they put it all all out in resource groups, and now they're running into challenges. It is not easy to go take one subscription and break it up into a whole bunch of different things because you can't just pick up resources or pick up networks 
and move them from one subscription to another subscription. There is absolutely some rebuilding that is involved in that. I think it's getting better. The number of things that kind of tend to cause friction or pain, like that list, like if you thought like, hey, that's my shopping list of stuff I got to go grab off the shelf, like it's getting smaller and smaller by the day. So that could be things like, honestly, moving resources between subscriptions these days isn't really that bad. Where it becomes painful is typically when you're trying to move resources between subscriptions that are in different tenants, like back to that wrap your head around like how your tenant model is going to tie into your subscription. Just about everything else, like not too bad. The other big pain point with resource stuff is just being able to like move your resources between regions. Like sometimes companies choose to go down that path. It's a little orthogonal, but you know, that's another consideration for you. And that's where stuff like resource mover comes into play and and keeps you kind of where you need to be. Networking is a sticky one. The thing that I see, and I'd be curious, Ben, like what you see with your customers, is I still run into folks who are thinking about networking and VNetting as really little itty bitty VNets, <laughs> like <laughs> slash twenty fours versus slash sixteen kinds of things. So you know they're they're running out there with like two hundred and fifty four IPs for two hundred fifty IPs because of all the reservation, like for this thing, and then they're running for two fifty for this thing and for this thing, and then they're trying to tie it all together and they're trying to figure out how to get a firewall in there and get a subnet for their bastion thing and they're like, I just don't have enough and I can't figure it out and now it's going to overlap with this other thing. It's like, all right, so we got to take a step back. We need to maybe plan things a little bit. Like, I think like a lot of this stuff, like it is super helpful to go back to the prescriptive guidance. Like, I know not everybody learns from documentation. I get it. Like, I am sympathetic to that. You're not always going to find a video for this stuff, and you're going to have to go read some things though, just to to move them forward. And if you find the Microsoft documentation a little squirrely, like it's just like obtuse to you, I get it. But you still got to like lean in and, and go down that way. Maybe there's some YouTube videos or some plural say things, but I think like the definitive resource for this stuff is going to be the Microsoft Docs. Like once you start to get into it and you know get hands-on with it, I think I think it helps a lot too. Yeah. I do see a lot of still those smaller networks like you said. I did just post a link to in the chat that gives you some guidance around moving networks because like people are asking in the chat, networks is probably the biggest one, especially if you have peerings, like you're going to have some downtime because at least if you're moving a VNet with peerings, you need to remove the peerings, then you can move it, then you can re-enable the peerings. But thinking about overlapping address spaces and networking is, I would say, by and large, probably the stickiest part of moving resources. VPN gateways are another one. If you do have VPN gateways, hopefully you don't have too many of those, depending on how everything is configured. But yeah, it's it's interesting. <laughs> I get it. It's hard. Change is hard. Like I struggle with that stuff all the time. But I think a lot of I know it sounds harsh and I don't want it to be a harsh thing. I want it to be a, a realistic thing. If you're looking at this and you're going like, "Wow, that's a lot of friction." Like I get it. 
but there is tangible ROI there for you should you choose to go in another direction, right? And I'll take like let's circle back around to Defender for Cloud customer, right? Like they want to be able to enable this and restrict it to a set of resources. Like with the current billing model for Defender for Cloud, like the reality is like you're going to need multiple subscriptions to make that happen. And some of that friction comes in if you don't already have multiple subscriptions. Like you don't have that mental model. So now you got to go step back and do what for some people was foundational work, but for you could not be. Like it's you circling back around to it and having to rethink things. And then maybe that has a, a, a knock on effect. But if you had already had one or, or you already had two subscriptions or maybe three, like you had like prod, non prod, and your sandbox or like your dev, like your real like dev playbox test area, like spinning up another one of those should be pretty common at some point. And you'll just kind of get yourself to, to where you need to be. Absolutely. So I don't know. I don't know that I have anything else on that topic. I think we covered it pretty well. Other than, to summarize, go create more subscriptions than you think you need. <laughs> uh, yes, there is always that piece. Like, it helps to have at least two when you're starting out. Well, thanks, Scott. That was an interesting discussion. Always good to talk about structure. I know we have some videos to out there that I think we talked about management groups a little bit. That was in the To the Cloud membership stuff. I got to get you to post those videos. I need to yeah, go put we those, do have a video yeah. where we did management groups, created them, kind of talked about some of the nuance of putting that hierarchy together, moving things around in management groups, all that stuff. I just got to I got to get my editor to post them. Something to do this weekend. I can go edit that video and get it posted for everybody so they can watch where we were playing around with management groups. Awesome. Well, thanks Scott. I think we'll wrap it up. Go enjoy your weekend. Try not to melt. It is way too hot. I'm going to go sweat it out. I apologize if anybody heard my AC running at a million percent or my fan that's spinning above me at, at a million miles an hour, but it is currently, what is it? Uh, feels like it's currently 113 as the sun just streams in behind the me. Sun. It's me more. <laughs> No, go ahead. Yeah. It's hot outside. Yeah, I'm going I'm to sit here and have my iced tea. And <laughs> my kids went out to the pool today and lasted like 45 minutes. They're like, it's too hot out. The pool is like 88 degrees. You said the same thing. It feels like 115 or whatever. And Yeah. My dogs go outside and I know it's hot when they don't even want to like play with a ball or do anything. They just go outside, they do whatever they need to do, and they turn right back around and come in. Like, I don't even have to say like, "Hey, come inside." <laughs> like normally, I have to like go out and hurt them. And nope, they're all ready for AC. So. You know what that means, Scott? You should have ice cream for dinner tonight. We used to do that when it was too hot. When I lived in Michigan, in Florida, it's too hot too often to do that. But every once in a while, I had ice cream for lunch. Oh, that works. I had a pint of Ben and Jerry's for lunch. So <laughs> I don't know if I should watch my figure going in the wrong way, wrong direction like that. Well, just get on the treadmill for a little bit now. That's if you. Eat ice cream while you're on the treadmill. That's okay, right? Absolutely. <laughs> like everything I know about exercise, I learned from Peggy Bundy, right? Like, give me a bonbon and a couch, and I'm all good. <laughs> Perfect. All right. So now we really will wrap it up. Go enjoy your weekend. Enjoy your ice cream. And we will talk to you next week. All right. Thanks, Ben. If you enjoyed the podcast, go leave us a five-star rating in iTunes. It helps to get the word out so more IT pros can learn about Office 365 and Azure. 
If you have any questions you want us to address on the show or feedback about the show, feel free to reach out via our website, Twitter, or Facebook. Thanks again for listening and have a great day.